this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 17, our discussion on an exciting potential antifibrotic therapy of the future and other advances in omics. This conversation starts by continuing to consider liver tissue, but from a very different angle. Louise Campbell asks whether there is a risk that when we replace liver tissue, it will fail to stop regenerating and become hyperplastic, that is, too many cells. Scott Friedman mentions the magic of regeneration, as he puts it, in asking why the liver always stops at the right size. But he does express real concern that the liver might regenerate cancer cells instead of only healthy ones. Neil Henderson from here mentions the holy grail of having the liver clear a bad scar and the regenerative tissue performing as if there never was injury in the first place. All these are possible, but we obviously need to know a lot more before we know how it'll work out. And in response to my final question, which is, what's the next place you see this kind of work making a practical difference? The five people left in the group, Stephen having left already, give a set of answers as diverse as the work we all do. First, congratulations to our friend Scott Friedman on his Lifetime Achievement Award. When you step back and look at where people like Scott and Neil Henderson are driving the science and technology of fatty liver disease, it taxes the mind's ability to absorb and envision all that change. I don't usually listen to our episodes more than once when we're done editing, but I've listened to this one three times so far just to absorb it. So you're in for a treat. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Louise Campbell. Can I just ask one question, uh, more in relation to the earlier part, because it was strange. I was thinking the same thing when Scott talked about prevention. We don't understand. One in 10 alcoholics will get cirrhosis and the other nine won't. And that excitement about being able to find out upstream what we're changing or what, what doesn't work and what does work. But what really are the risks? Is there a risk of if we target regeneration that we can over-regenerate the liver with new tissue and therefore actually increase fibrosis and and create the problem we're trying to solve. Scott Friedman. Great question, Louise, and I'll answer it a little bit differently. First of all, we don't understand the magic of regeneration. How is it you can take two-thirds of a liver, remove it surgically, put it in a recipient, and both the recipient liver in the new host and the original remnant liver in the donor both grow to full size and then stop? How do we know? I mean, well, how does it know? It's, it's, it's absolutely miraculous. And so what you're asking is, could it not stop? And rather than worry about it growing too much uh, within the space, what I do worry about is that that growth can be translated into growth of cancer cells. So that's the tightrope we walk when we're looking for therapies that improve regeneration is we want to basically harness pathways that make the cells healthier, but don't overexcite them to grow to the point where they may evolve into a cancer. And that's a very naive, simplistic description, but a lot of the growth signals that enhance regeneration in principle are also implicated in liver cancer. So we need to really tread that line very, very carefully. I suspect Neil agrees. Neil Henderson. I do. I do. And also I would layer on and, you know, the funny thing here, Louise, is I'm actually going to quote Scott further here because I remember him giving this talk a couple of years ago or maybe pre-pandemic. But what, what Scott was highlighting also in this talk was it's really interesting the data that we're seeing where by manipulating the scar, you might concomitantly drive regeneration. And we don't understand that. I mean, you know, why melting scar then translates to actually the liver regenerates even more. Now, you may say, 
say the liver is in general happier because it has less scar but there's some phenomenon going on whereby treating the scar actually makes the liver regenerate more so we're all biased because we're liver liver interested folks but this incredible plasticity of the liver and that's where you could argue we should be some of the biggest optimists in, in the fibrosis field because of the plasticity of this organ versus you know other organs but it's a really cool interrelationship and, and I think the question you asked was was a really good one about the regenerative side of things some people would say if you can drive regeneration it's anti-fibrotic so you know the holy grail would be in, in someone with bad fibrosis would be to melt away a lot of the scars so you get restitution of normal architecture and it allows the liver to do its thing better and also drive hepatocyte growth to increase parenchymal function if we could do these things we know that cirrhotic patients as you know extremely well are far more prone to sepsis now why is that and it's probably in some way part to do with all this altered blood flow through the liver with all scarring and the immune surveillance ain't what it was when the liver was normal so the number of benefits that the patient could accrue from trying to get back to this more normal architecture are vast and it's a really interesting area really interesting and something Scott and I have, have talked about in the past and I think it needs a lot more study and, and like you're saying not focusing just on melt and scar but what other beneficial effects might that drive but also coming at it from the regenerative side. First of all I want to thank as we wrap up I want to thank uh, everybody but Scott and Neil you know you have these days in your life where you feel like you walk through a door at opening and you see the world differently than you did the day before I've had that experience in the last hour and a half so thank you. Scott congratulations again I don't think you're going to get tired of hearing this one <laughs> at least no, not, not, in the, not in the near future for a well-deserved and totally appropriate lifetime award. We all believe you made a difference. It's great that your colleagues see it as well. Well, each of you have as well, for sure. We're all trying in our, hum in our humble ways, and thank you. My wrap-up question really is to Scott and Neil, and, and Jorn and Louise, finesse this however you'd like. The work that you're doing right now, where is the next place that you see it making a difference in terms of uh, where the rubber's going to meet the road in terms of actual treatment of patients? Where do, where do you think that's likely to happen next, and what's it likely to look like? Well, as, as Neil knows, we're very interested in developing the right treatment for the right cell at the right time in the history of the disease. And I'll just leave it at that. So we, we think we're beginning to appreciate that a target that's useful in a patient who has mild fibrosis or tractable may not be as appealing in late fibrosis. And so we're thinking a lot about that. We also think a lot about the point that Neil made, and I'm flattered that you remembered, but it, it's so such a powerful natural experiment where you get rid of the scar and suddenly the liver starts regenerating or you start stimulating regeneration and the scar melts away. And I can't say we have any major insights, but it's worth seeing what's in front of us and asking the obvious question is how does that all communicate? And so those are the kinds of questions we're tackling. Yeah, I would say very, very similar, Roger, and Scott's group's doing as well, using these cutting edge technologies, which I'm at pains to say this is the opposite of just employing cutting edge technology for, for its sake. You know, these technologies are, are shining lights on the biology or pathobiology underpinning these diseases in a way that we've, Scott's you know, worked in this field for a long time and I'm sure he'd agree with a resolution we just wasn't possible before. So it's incredibly exciting. It's almost overwhelming at times the amount of information that this is yielding. But my goodness, it's a lot of fun going through it, trying to, to find the best angles for therapies for patients. I agree. And I, I would say that Neil is one of the few and certainly among the most adept at putting complex information and data sets into a context that actually clarifies human disease and human liver disease in his case. So at the end of the day, you got to understand the biology and the disease context in which that biology is operating. So it really takes a very broad skill set and a, a 
seasoned perspective like uh, Neil has to make sense of it all. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, and to loop it back to drug development, I think where I do see this technology sit is to really decipher the patients that do respond or not. I guess this is what Scott highlighted uh, at looking at the right patients to treat, but maybe also understanding why some non-respond and why some don't respond. It's even beyond pathophysiology. It's the individualized pathophysiology because we are all well aware that not everybody responds alike to the same patient, in particular in a multifaceted disease as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And just to round it up from a clinical perspective, Neil, you mentioned the the regression of SCAR and Scott discussed this. And I had a patient today in clinics and I read my uh, my report 10, day, 10 years back. Uh, he had hepatitis B associated compensated cirrhosis. I did uh, do non-invasive tests today and his uh, transit elastography read out for 8.5, which I'm convinced uh, he's non-cirrhotic anymore. And, and, and that's the reality. We can revert this. And it's, of course, very important that we understand uh, how this could be further augmented. I mean, uh, nuke therapy for HPV is, is a very specific treatment and a whole different story, but for sure, a blue pause to, to understand that cirrhosis is revertible. Yeah, it's a great point, Jorn, a great point. And this is the thing, as you highlight, we see it in front of our eyes. You know, this this is far from sort of preclinical experimental readouts. This is seeing it in patients, which which is fantastic and gives us all hope that we can actually make impact in, in for example, non-viral, I mean, viral liver disease has been a wonderful success story, but has also been really exciting for people like me who work in non-viral disease to see that actually if we give the livers a chance they're going to do quite a lot of it on their own. Louise go ahead. I think I echo a little bit of what Jean was just saying there the, and I've seen a lot of patients recently with this catch up that have regressed from the hepatitis C post antiviral therapy which is always reassuring but also it's about finding people earlier so that we can stabilise their disease with technologies like this potentially in the future for those who are in the middle ground F3 early F4 holding these patients stable because these patients will provide a wealth of the research. They will be the subjects. They will be the willing volunteers to do these clinical trials and be prepared to undergo biopsy because they are they have potential exciting outcomes that's the earlier we diagnose the slower we can get the diseases to progress and the more we can put in the lifestyle and care management that helps these patients stabilize long enough to get them to that stage for these exciting treatments absolutely echo that louise i think it's a great point the other thing just for kicks a bit further to what you were saying i was chatting to someone the other day you know roger when we talk about absolute blue sky thinking and they were imaging guys and I was talking to them about in some way trying to measure whole transcriptome gene expression with an imaging modality. We were deliberately just have an absolute open book kick around of that as a potential uh, modality. And the funny thing was, in a great way, at the far end of the discussion, it didn't seem like Saturn by the end of the discussion. And, you know, if we could get towards high-plex molecular diagnosis in a non-invasive way, that would again take us all on in lots of different ways once more. So medicine moves really fast, science moves even faster. But yeah, I think all all of us on this call are of a similar mind of we just remain open-minded and see where it takes us. And um, Some of the stuff is fantastic. Let me tell you one of the doors that opened to me, and Scott kind of touched on this a minute ago. On our more typical episodes, when we're closer to uh, clinical treatment and drug development than we are today, we talk a lot about the longitude of the disease. In fact, we talk about longitudinal combination therapy, the idea that what you would want to do uh, for an F4 patient and an F2 patient might be very different. But we're talking about entirely practical issues. The idea that large molecule biologics are going to be more expensive, 
dosage than small molecule pills. The idea that side effects will have something to do with the dose administration, all that, so that you might over time manage the patient if you're going to regress disease or stabilize disease for some combination of cost and tolerability. You're talking about longitudinal from a whole different direction. The, the idea that the targets change. And then there's the interesting question to me, Scott, if, if the target is what it is at F2 and you don't treat it at F2 and you go on a compensated cirrhosis and somehow regress the patient back to F2, are you going to get back to the same target? I mean, right, one, of, one of the things we know is that when you take people out of cirrhosis, you can regress, you can regress some elements of it, but other elements are never going to go back to where they were. Well, there, there actually is some biology, if I can interpose. You got a second, Rod? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's been beautiful studies originally by Robert Schwabe and Tatiana Kisileva, and some of that is now being carried on in my own group uh, by very talented young faculty that all show that, you know, when liver fibrosis regresses and the liver doesn't need activated stellate cells to make scar, that some of them die. And one of Neil's former mentors was instrumental in uncovering that, John Iredale. But some of them just regress or inactivate. And those inactivated stellate cells are somewhere in between a truly quiescent stellate cell and one that's totally activated. So it's really, your, your question is really intriguing because it could well be that the now what we want to target when they regress to F2 is a repertoire of targets that characterize the inactivated stellate cell and not the one that's never been activated. And they may be different. They're certainly different epigenetically. I think we know that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's Innovations in Naphil Care 2022 meeting in Barcelona next month. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.